The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Live long and prosper. Not just the Vulcan salute from Star Trek. Now, it's also a ticker on the New York Stock Exchange. LLAP for the latest space company to go public. Terran Orbital began trading in late March. Since then, though, shares have tumbled. I, I think you have a few things going on here with the stock. You know, people are still thinking of all low-Earth orbit satellites are the same, and constellations are the same, which they're not. People aren't realizing that we truly are a contract manufacturer. On this episode, I break down the business of Terran Orbital with CEO and co-founder Mark Bell as the satellite market heats up and the stock market cools. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. Terran Orbital recently merged with a special purpose acquisition company, or SPAC. An investment vehicle popularized by Virgin Galactic back in 2019 that has led to a flurry of space startups raising capital and going public. Terran expects to be profitable by one metric as soon as next year, as it builds one of the largest satellite factories in the world. And with that, its own constellation. CEO, co-founder, and self-proclaimed Trekkie, Mark Bell outlines the business model and how this hybrid asset class is evolving. Uh, I founded Terran Orbital 10 years ago. Uh, we are a small sat manufacturer. We are one of the pioneers in this industry. Uh, we, start, we, we are the guys who helped invent the CubeSat. Uh, Dr. Jordi Pugsuari and Bob Twiggs were the co-inventors of the CubeSat. Uh, Dr. Pugsuari started a company called Pivac Nano Satellite Systems that we acquired in 2013. And that was the beginning of Terran Orbital. And fast forward today, uh, we produce satellites up to 500 kilograms, starting from a satellite that was as small as you could hold in your hand. And we are producing uh, satellites for both the US government, uh, NASA, and commercial clients as well. So what does that mix look like in terms of what you're doing directly for the government versus contractors versus um, you know, commercial space? Uh, I think today it's about more than 50% is U.S. government related, uh, and that's climbing dramatically. Uh, I expect it to be over 80% by the end of 2022. Uh, we're, getting, we're on SDA's tranche zero, uh, SDA's tranche one, and uh, those are very large programs just on their own. Yeah, so, so you're a commercial space play, but you're also very much a defense and a defense contractor or a national security play in terms of the company. So what does that look like? What does that mean in the midst of everything we're seeing geopolitically right now? You know, it's, it's, it's brought a lot of attention to uh, imaging around the world. Uh, we, do, we have a pro project called uh, Predasar, where we use uh, something called synthetic aperture radar, where we're able to image through clouds, image at night. And uh, Ukraine has made that very much on the forefront of our conversations being a breadbasket of Europe, uh, producing all 40% of all grain and barley in Europe, uh, but, but it's historically a very cloudy, rainy country. So it's very hard to image with an electro-optical satellite. That's a satellite with a camera in it. So we are um, 
you know, spending a lot of time talking to the government about, you know, augmenting and supplanting uh, what they currently have uh, in order to assist it in any way possible. Mm. We, we did just get this new budget proposal from the Biden administration as well. And space does seem poised, again, not only from a defense and national security standpoint, but also from a civil space standpoint, uh, to be a beneficiary. Is, is that your expectation? And, and what does that mean in terms of future opportunities and how you are deploying capital, especially now that you're a public company at Terran Orbital? So you, you think about it as uh, in, in the past, it used to cost a billion dollars to build a satellite for the military, and it took eight to 10 years. Now it costs $10 million, and it takes 12 to 24 months, and you get predominantly the same functionality out of, out of these satellites. So well, we, we built something now the size of a small refrigerator. It's about 500 kilograms. Um, it's about our, it's our typical size uh, that we're doing, but you're getting tremendous functionality. So we do a lot more for a lot less. Uh, it's pretty incredible when you think about how that curve has evolved over time. I, where are we going in terms of the technology? Uh, you know, I, we're seeing uh, as we increase, we're increasing functionality. So we're building more and more things into satellites uh, that become standard. Uh, and we're decreasing the price per bus. The buses with the satellite, we're coming, we build buses that's a, a basically a satellite. And the payload is what that satellite does. So whether it's 5G, Internet of Things, electro-optical, synthetic optical radar, hyperspectral, RF. And so we're payload agnostic as what we are in how we build these things. And people are inventing new and new kinds of payloads to put onto satellites that we're seeing. And, and people are trying to integrate those satellites in orbit. You're seeing the Space Development Agency do, do just that with the transport layer. And of course, you're building out your own low Earth orbit constellation as well. Tell us about that. So this was a, a program that we were working on for government customer. And we decided it would be more cost effective for us to do it ourselves and to just provide that customer and many other customers access to the data. And here's a constellation that we'll be able to not only image during the day, like if you look at Google Earth, you can see your house only on a clear sunny day, but we can see it at night. We can see it when it's cloud cover. And the joke in our industry is, you know, half the time the Earth is, is at night, half the time the Earth is covered in clouds. So you don't get a lot of time to go ahead and do imaging, whereas we could do it 24 seven, 365. How big is the constellation gonna be? And when do you start launching it into orbit? Uh, we're starting off with 96 satellites. Uh, we're hoping to start launching by the end of this year. Uh, we are working on ways to you know, increase the functionality of it. Uh, we have a contract from Air Force Research Labs to put an optical satellite interlink on the, on the, our first satellite so we can interface with DARPA's Blackjack program and other programs in space. So we're getting a lot of requests to add other things to the satellites and uh, to make them more integrated into the current military infrastructure. So how does that stack up against some of the other constellations that we've seen. I mean, you've got Planet, you've got Hawkeye, you've got Spire. There's there's a handful. Um, what it, what do you bring to the table that's so different? You know, they're, they're, those are great companies, and they're doing something completely different than we're doing. Uh, what we're doing is we're building satellites that use a, a technology called software-defined synthetic aperture radar that allows us to see through objects and do object recognition on the ground. Uh, they're using RF. They're using electro-optical. These are all completely different technologies. And uh, we, but when, when put together, that forms you know, a complete picture of the Earth. So we're very complementary to what they did. We're not competitive. Interesting. I mean, are we going to need all these different types of technologies to really be able to 
move this area of the industry forward or do you expect we're going to start to see consolidation? You know, you see a lot of companies today going to electro-optical because uh, it's cheap and easy to do. Uh, SAR is very complicated to do. Uh, synthetic obturator has pretty much been the domain of garments. Um, every SAR satellite today owned by the U.S. government is still classified. They don't discuss what they have up in orbit today. Uh, so be, being a SAR constellation that's commercially owned, it's something very new. It's a very old technology. It's been around 50 years, but it's a very new technology in uh, building a small format like what we're doing. Do you know who's going to launch the satellites for you yet? Uh, yeah, we, we, we predominantly rely on SpaceX for our rides. Uh, it's a great ride. We've used Rocket Lab in the past, but it'll definitely be a U.S. ride. Got it. And then I guess how does, how, how does that in-house constellation stack up against the work you're doing for other companies and other governments? And what does that mix of business look like as we move out over the years? So, I mean, what we, what we're doing with SAR doesn't compete with anybody. We still build satellites for our customers. Uh, this is being built for a very specific purpose. And we're, unlike most of the companies you just mentioned, they build satellites, they build constellations, and then they hope the customer comes. <laughs> In our case, uh, so on, on our satellite solutions business, the customer comes to us. We, with a problem they want to solve from space, we turn around and help them design a satellite and a constellation that solve their problem from space. So we don't take any risk. Same thing goes with our constellation. Hustler came to us with a problem they want to solve in space. This just is a different economic model uh, in order to deliver the data to the customer, but allows us to build a constellation out much faster than the traditional methods. What do you think it's going to take to convince investors, or I guess educate investors, um, about your business model? And I mean, just the fact that you just said that you're not taking risk here, and that this is, represents a different sort of economic uh, approach to everything, and yet you've been in public, com pu company's been public for a week, and as we've seen throughout the broader space industry that's publicly traded now, the stock sold off. I mean, investors still maybe don't have their arms around the sector. Uh, I, I think you have a few things going on here with the stock. You know, people are still thinking of all low-Earth orbit satellites are the same, and constellations are the same, which they're not. People aren't realizing that we truly are a contract manufacturer. <clears throat> for example, we build for Lockheed Martin uh, satellites up to 500 kilograms. We do strategic cooperation agreement with them. I think people are still trying to get their arms around that. And the other uh, dynamic you have going on here is you know, we, we decided to go do a SPAC as opposed to an uh, IPO or a direct listing. So until we institutionalize the stock, you don't have a lot of market support out there. But if people start to see our backlog turn into real revenues, I think you'll start to see people understand how this is a real company with real revenues, a uh, real pipeline, real backlog, and real management. Yeah, I mean we've talked about it before, but why the decision to go the SPAC route? You know, it, it was it was a it was a tough decision at the time, but we're happy we did it. Um, we took at the end of the day about a fifteen percent dilution to do it, and we looked at all three, and we've done IPOs before. Uh, we've never done direct listing, but if we tried to do an IPO on on February twenty fourth, we would have had a market out. And, uh, and so we would, uh, we would never have gone public. We needed access to capital. We wanted access to the capital markets. And we only took about a 15% dilution hit going through a SPAC, but it gave us a guaranteed access to closing. So we had put together a $250 million quote unquote backstop arrangement to make sure that we go public at the end of the day. And, we, and it gives us access to, and that way we guaranteed access to the capital markets. And we know what the business is worth five years from now, so we were very unconcerned about the, the small dilution hit we took to have uh, certainty of close. 
And of course, that capital you were able to raise, I mean, you're expanding. You're expanding really quickly, too. And you're hiring. What are the numbers? Uh, we are, we've gone from 50,000 square feet of space uh, last year to almost a quarter million space, feet of space uh, right now. We have another 660,000 square feet. We're hoping to break ground soon and break ground soon in Cape Canaveral. <clears throat> It'll be the world's largest satellite assembly facility able to produce over a thousand satellites a year. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. We are uh, hiring. Uh, we had about 100 people a year ago. We're over 300 people today. We'll be putting 2,100 people up at Cape Canaveral uh, at that facility. And we'll hopefully continue to have about 500 people here in Irvine uh, at the end of the day. Uh, by, I'm sorry, by Memorial Day. So these are, these are made in the USA satellites. Uh, we, 90% of our satellites are made in the USA. We have a division in Italy, Toronto, Italy, which does all of our international work. So it's really the separation of church and state here. We physically keep these operations separate. The people in Italy stay there, the US people stay here. So we never mix the two. Hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the work you're doing for NASA as well, because you're involved in Capstone, which is pretty cool. Uh, Capstone is really cool. Uh, Capstone is uh, the beginning of a permanent uh, co communication system what will end up being a permanent presence at the moon. And it'll one constant satellite will always face the Earth, uh, no matter where, where, where uh, it'll be part of a constellation. So there'll be always guaranteed connectivity between the moon and our permanent moon presence and the Earth. We're very excited about it. Hmm. And when does that get up and running? Uh, soon, I'm told. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we have another satellite from NASA going up on Artemis uh, called Loon IR where we're going to help map out the moon and map out the dark side of the moon. And um, Artemis, I know, keeps slipping a little bit, but we are very excited to see both these satellites get up in orbit uh, as quickly as possible. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because satellites still represent the lion's share of profitability and investment and growth when it comes to the space sector. I feel like human space flight gets, gets a lot of the attention because it's sort of seen as, like, exciting and sexy. But in general, the fact that we're starting to see some of this converge, and I think Artemis is a good example, where do you see, I guess, where do you see space going? You know, there's a lot of space in space. Uh, there's, a lot, sorry, there's a lot of things that we can do in space. Um, and you think of all the things that were invented in space uh, that we take it, that we use here on Earth, and it is just, you know, the opportunities are endless. And as it gets cheaper to get to space, as it becomes safer for people to go to space, um, you know, there's whole new industries that may start from this. It's, it's pretty spectacular. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess what does that mean in terms of, what does that mean in terms of Terran Orbital and where the satellite piece of this puzzle is going to go? You know, it's longer the, term. You know, the, the way we look at this, you know, uh, it is a little bit of a land grab right now because people don't also need to understand uh, when you're building satellite constellations like we do, <clears throat> predominantly in low Earth orbit, though we do MEO and geosynchronous, in low Earth orbit, uh, these satellites are not built, uh, they're not radiation hardened, so the radiation from the sun eventually burns out the batteries. It takes a little bit over five years, so we have to replace those satellites every five years. So we're part of the world's first manufacturing business that truly is a recurring revenue business, as we know that our products will expire and people will have to replace them every five years. Huh. It's interesting when you break it down like that, the fact that this isn't in some ways a little bit cyclical. Um, that there's going to be more business. I mean, you talk about there being a lot of space in space where low Earth orbit is concerned. Is there? Or are we getting very crowded and it's becoming a, a trickier situation to navigate? 
There's a lot of space. Think of, this way. <laughs> Think of this way. You have, you know, it's 40% covered by land, 60% by water. On that 40% of land, you got 3.2 billion cars. So, uh, and so it's a lot of things running around there. You know, in space, you probably have like 17,000 objects floating around right now, including a lot of debris. But you have a lot of uh, what we call, what I call wide space, a lot of height. So the tallest building on Earth is the Burj Khalifa, which is like 2,000 feet. Uh, we have 43,000 miles of space uh, wide there. So there's a, literally a lot of space to space, but space debris has become an issue. And so we're, we're you know, a lot of people are saying it's a government problem. Uh, we're taking it into our own hands. We're working with the government and on our own. We're building satellites to track debris in space. Uh, and we're building systems on our satellites. We're putting AI in space where our satellites will move, be able to move out of the way of debris coming its way and move back into the position where it's supposed to be all on its own without human interaction. Right now in the ISS, people have to turn on the thrusters and move it and move it back. This will all be all done by computers in space without human, human touching the satellite. Mm. In terms of being able to, to track, you said track that debris in space, right? What is, um, I mean, I guess, I guess what, what does that entail? And given the fact you already sort of have tracking systems out there in place, I mean, how much further can that go? You know, there's lots of systems being put in place. If you think of it this way, you, you ever, if you're on a plane, there's something in a cockpit in most planes called a TCAS, Traffic Collision Avoidance System. And if, you, if another plane's coming your way, it'll say traffic, traffic. It'll say, you know, pull up, pull up. And you hope it doesn't say pray, pray. But the idea is that it tells you what to do. And so we're going to build that same kind of technology into our future satellites that'll tell the satellite to get out of the way, an object is coming, and tell it when it's safe to go back to where it originally was supposed to be. Understood. Uh, so how did you get into this business? You've been, you've been involved in this company. You created this company 10 years ago. Were you always interested in space, or how did that happen? So uh, I, I will have to confess I am a uh, diehard Trekkie ever since I was 10 years old and a diehard space nut. And so it's been my passion, uh, space, my whole life. And I had the opportunity to acquire Tyvek about 10 years ago and get into this business. And uh, I couldn't be any more excited about what I do every day. Uh, I, I'm, I'm living my dream. It's, I get to build things and put them into space. It's very exciting. What were you doing before this? Uh, before this, I was, I was a Broadway show producer for fun. I had a, I founded a, I co-founded a mortgage REIT. And before that, I had a company called Globix in the 90s, where I owned, we had 28,000 miles of fiber around the world uh, for the internet. We were, we were one of the original parts of the internet backbone. We were the world's largest logical peer in the 90s, second largest owner of internet data centers in the 90s, and hosted uh, some of Walmart's and Microsoft's original websites. So it was a very, but we got into satellites then, because we couldn't reach fiber into Eastern Europe. So we formed a company called NetSat Express and built ground stations throughout Eastern Europe to provide internet connectivity there. Got it. So was it basically like a crash course then when you actually had the opportunity to buy this asset, build out this company, or was it sort of a natural extension based off of that background? Well, I became, I bought the company with my business partner, Tony Previtt. Um, he was the CEO until March of last year, and we kind of switched roles. And then it was a crash course on uh, learning what to, how to do everything, and it has been incredibly exciting. Uh, it's just great to sit until I, I was a telecom programmer when I was a kid, <clears throat> and then became a network engineer, 
and you know now learning about how to build satellites and put them into space is just been invigorating. It's uh, I, I love going to work every day. Yeah, that's great. Um, or do you think we're at a tipping point? I mean, you've been at this for 10 years, right? And I feel like so many of the entrepreneurs that I speak to within the sector have been doing this for quite a long time. But the fact that we are seeing so many companies like yours go public, the fact that we are starting to see more money come into as an investment into the sector overall, um, it, it, is, the, is, it, is the vision finally starting to be realized or do we still have a long way to go? I think we're just starting. I mean, the fact that I'm here today is proof that you know, we are getting attention. People are listening. People are understanding that this is the future. This is an asset class. Space will become an asset class. <clears throat> and, we, and we straddle. We're national security and defense, and we're space. So it's kind of like a, a hybrid asset class, if you would. Because we're seeing, you know, there's lots of things that are be done in space. Granted, there will be consolidation and there will be change. But, you know, we're all pioneers in this. And uh, those, those with the real business plans will survive. For better or worse, the situation in Eastern Europe with Russia invading Ukraine has really shined a light on space as a warfighting domain and this idea of sort of securing space. Um, so how are you factoring that in when it comes to your satellites? You know, uh, so by building constellations, I mean, uh, two things. First of all, in low Earth orbit, we're traveling about six kilometers per second. So we're about two to three times faster than a hypersonic missile. So we're kind of hard to hit. And by building satellites in bulk, uh, if we lose one, if we, that's we're building 96 predator satellites, if we lost one, we could still perform our mission. We have 95 left. And, and, there, and, we can, and we'll have spares on the ground. So it'll be very quick for us to launch them and get them back up to replace the ones that are taken out. Are cyber attacks a real, a real threat, given what we're seeing with some commercial operators? You know, cyber is a real concern, uh, like both on the ground and in space. We take it very seriously. <laughs> Granted, it's hard to hack a satellite moving at six kilometers a second, uh, unlike the router sitting in your home or office. But we still take it very seriously uh, to secure our networks on the ground, the ground stations, and to make sure that our comms are also encrypted. So we, we do take cyber incredibly seriously, especially in this day and age. Mm. And then I guess just to sort of wrap all this up, run through some of the numbers with me in terms of growth outlook for Terra and Orbital over the next couple of years and what that means for the path to profitability. You know, uh, we, we're starting, we, we, we announced the other day we have over $200 million of unbuilt backlog, uh, which is a great way to start the year for us. We are obviously continuing to add more and more revenue and more and more clients and we, as we continue to expand facilities. So at this point, you know, we're really the only constraint, constriction we have on growth is just adding more space and more people, and uh, we're in a very, very lucky position right now. And so we feel very bullish about our, our, our perspectives, and uh, we're excited about the future. Are there certain aspects of your approach to the company that are going to change now that it's a publicly traded company and not private anymore? Um, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, we've been, you know, this is our this is my uh, fifth unicorn that I built. We've been, I've run public companies before, and we pretty much do it out of what I joke is the same playbook. Uh, we look at what we've done in the past and with the successes we've had, we look at the failures and try not to repeat those. And you know, we, we focus on our people. We, you know, at the end of the day, it all comes down to our amazing employees and parents, and we want them to be happy, to be productive, to like where they, like where they work, like what they do. And uh, we want to encourage them to innovate and continue to push things to the limit and create new and exciting products. And then, of course, your ticker is very memorable, live long and prosper. 
God, no, listen, it's, it's, it's an ode to my uh, obsession with Star Trek. And yeah, I was very lucky to get the ticker. And, uh, and we have more Star Trek references coming soon, uh, what we're doing. So uh, we will be having a little bit of fun with this. All right. Well, we look forward to that. I, I always love to see the way companies come up with their names for projects. So I feel like that was a little bit of a teaser. Yes. <laughs> Mark Bell of Terran Orbital, thank you so much for joining me today. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by searching Manifest Space wherever you get your podcasts and by following the Squawk on the Street podcast. For more on the space race, be sure to watch Squawk on the Street on CNBC. I'm Morgan Brennan. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.